0: Great. I'm going to read to us from John chapter 5. Do follow along as I uh, read it to you. John chapter 5, verse 1. Healing at the pool. Sometime later, Jesus went to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Now, there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool which in Aramaic is called Bethsaida, and by which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. And here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, the paralysed, One who was there had been invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he'd been in this condition for a long time, he asked him, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes in ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. At once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. The day on which this took place was a Sabbath, and so the Jewish leaders said to the man who'd been healed, it's the Sabbath, the law forbids you to carry your mat. But he said, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you are well again. Stop sinning, or something worse may happen to you. It's August 2003, and the Selvaratnam family are coming back from holiday in France. Yours truly driving, my wife Amanda in the front passenger seat, and then our three children in the back. Um, Kate, our eldest, was then 13. Philip, who was here at the earlier service, Uh, was just four, and Hannah, our youngest, was two. And we are towing a caravan. This is important to the story. Uh, On the way back to the port, through France, we have to pass through Rennes. Uh, As you go through Rennes, you have to drive over uh, an incredible bridge with a scenic 200-foot drop on either side. Caravan. Bridge. 200-foot drop. At that point, a series of events began to unfold, a perfect storm of disaster that led to a very unexpected outcome. Firstly, as we approached the bridge, um, we were driving downhill. At that point, instead of the caravan being pulled by the car, the weight of it is actually now pressing onto the car. Next, as we begin the approach to the bridge and get onto the bridge, Uh, the crosswind, which the surrounding land had been sheltering us from, now starts to push against the side of the car and the caravan. And thirdly, a lorry overtakes us. Now, if you know anything about lift, the thing that holds an airplane in the air, the lorry passing by a flat side next to another flat side, not far apart, meant it sucked and pushed against the caravan. The front of the caravan got a pull, and the back of the caravan got a push. And my car and caravan went into harmonic motion. Now, I know this is harmonic motion because I paid attention in physics lessons at school. And Mr. Dubber, my A-level physics teacher, did once say to me, Christian, one day science will save your life. How right he was. As the caravan began to swing, energised by the wind, each swing of the caravan made it shift more violently. And it eventually reached the point that at the end of the swing, the caravan was actually lifting the back wheels of the car off the road. It was at that moment that I knew I no longer have power over this situation. The car wasn't big enough to accelerate out of it, I knew that if I tried to brake, that could go very badly. And there was only one thing for it. And in what I can only describe as a a James Bond moment, (laughs) I decided to spin the wheel and turn the car and the caravan together. As the car and caravan had turned 90 degrees on the road, I tapped on the brake, and the caravan detached from the hitch, and we could see it out the side mirror, just started to sort of fly off in front. Interesting point at that moment. I caught in the corner of my eye while my wife Amanda looking at me, and it, it, it was what I can only describe as a wife look, that kind of said, we'll talk about this later. <laughs> um, as the caravan detached from the car, it began to fall over, and we saw it go to one side of the road. And then the, the car continued to do another 450 degree spin, which definitely would have got me a gold medal in the Olympics. Eventually, the car stops traveling in reverse, smashing into the central reservation of the motorway. Uh, we were trapped inside the doors. Both sides of the doors were crumpled. We had to climb out of um, the windows. And the good news is we were all fine. Nobody else was hurt. Um, the caravan didn't land on anyone. Um, and the car was written off, but the people inside it were okay. And by sheer providence, two police cars, one on each side of the road happened to pass at that exact moment, and policemen jumped out with whistles and sweeping brushes and just swept up the road and got everything back into um, shape to go very quickly. I wonder if, like me, you've ever felt powerless, perhaps when we're sick or we lose a job or we fail an exam or we lose our way or make a mistake, when we fall out with a friend or when we fall out with somebody that we love deeply when somebody dies unexpectedly or just through getting older perhaps like me you're aware that life all too easily reminds us that we as humans are limited and frail and the circumstances of life can be powerful and overwhelming in the passage that we just heard from the man in the passage knew this experience. He's someone who'd been an invalid for 38 years. 38 years! And he'd been hanging out beside this community pool with other people who also had incurable, life-altering illnesses. And you probably picked it up in the story, there was some kind of folklore associated with the pool. It would have been something like this, From time to time, God sends an angel to stir the water in the pool, and if you can jump in the water at that point, perhaps you will be healed. This man is so down on his luck that he even says to Jesus, I don't even have any friends that could lift me into the pool if that were to happen. Jesus, of course, heals the man, but the story is also like an allegory of Jesus' power. The man doesn't have power to change his circumstances, his friends don't have power to help him, the angel doesn't have power even to be there, but Jesus has power for this man. This series, Jesus Loves Everyone, has explored the idea that God's love is bigger than any of us think. And through three different stories in a continuous section of uh, John's gospel, we've seen that Jesus loves everyone. John puts his telling of the stories of Jesus together in this distinctive way to try and labor the point that Jesus loves more people than you think he does. He loves the successful, but he also loves those who are unknown. He loves the intelligent elite, but he also loves the ordinary people. He loves women as well as men. He loves the insiders and the outsiders. He loves those that need forgiveness, those that carry shame, and those that need Jesus' power. In fact, over the last two weeks and then today, we've seen three different perspectives on Jesus' love applied. When Adam spoke to us, we heard about the woman at the well, someone who was carrying shame to whom Jesus gave honor. Uh, We heard about Nicodemus, a man that was carrying guilt because he was not quite good enough before God, and he needed forgiveness. And today we have a man who needs God's power to receive mercy and justice. These three examples actually illustrate the three ways that the good news of Jesus plays out through culture and through the world. Guilt-forgiveness, shame-honor, and power-justice or power-fear. And guilt forgiveness is is the usual way that we understand Jesus in the Western world. It's, It's the way people like us normally explain what Jesus is to a person. And we talk predominantly about a Jesus who can forgive you when you feel guilty of your faults. This is, of course, completely true. But on its own it limits our understanding of what the love of Jesus actually looks like. Also, it's an incredibly individualistic way of looking at Jesus. It resolves the whole sweep of what Jesus accomplished down to almost like a consumeristic transaction between him and me. I give him something and he gives me something back. And also, it doesn't fully communicate uh, the change about... um, God's power to bring future change in our lives. It's almost as if we stop at saying, Jesus can take your debts and wipe them clean. It doesn't say, this is how Jesus can take you forward. And it's actually now not uncommon to talk to people who no longer feel a sense of guilt at their faults. So these are people to whom the good news of Jesus actually just sounds like Good news for somebody else who might need that, but not necessarily good news for them. Shame and honor is more common in uh, Asia, uh, and it also understands the community nature of sin. What, What happens to us in our relationships when our relationship with Jesus is broken? Adam spoke to us about the woman at the well, and she didn't just need to be forgiven, she also needed honor from God, because she was in shame. Although everyone in her village knew who she was, nobody wanted to associate with her because of what her life was about. Her shame was evident uh, and expressed through the broken relationship she had with those people who knew her. And power justice is more common maybe in Africa uh, or uh, parts of Asia and some developing nations, but it's also true for all of us that Jesus' power is enough to overcome the fears that can entrap us. Uh, my friend Joel, who lives in the Ivory Coast, tells me that he preaches, Jesus is more powerful than your family gods and your local gods. That's how he explains Jesus. He says, you have already, you've already understand the fear-power dynamic. You already understand the power-justice dynamic in your worldview of how things works. But he wants people to know Jesus is the all-powerful God. He's the one that's more powerful than any others. So you can come to Jesus and not have fear, because he's more powerful than the powers that might cause you to be fearful and hold you back. And also this power justice, this power fear way of talking about what Jesus does, is what we celebrate at Easter. It's how we describe the Easter story um, when we explain Jesus in Holy Week in the build-up to Easter. Here's here's some words from a hymn that I was reading this morning. Christ is risen. He's risen from the dead. Now ascended Jesus, our living head. Where your victory, O grave, and O death, where is your sting? Christ is risen, now ascended. Jesus Christ, our risen head. He lives. He lives to die no more. He lives. He lives forevermore. Death is swallowed up in victory. Hallelujah. Christ is risen. And each of these viewpoints, um, illustrated in the stories of this series, tell us a different part of the picture of how Jesus loves everyone. And it's particularly important for us because actually the world is getting smaller and how people behave and think and understand and respond to God is getting contracted. It's not as if we can say that's what people in this country over there think like, but in this country here we think differently. Actually, all of these views are coming together. There are people who we know, who need to know that Jesus can release them from shame, that Jesus can release them from fear, as well as Jesus can release them from sin. Um, I've been reading some... Uh, a book written by Ken Costa, and I wonder if I could just read uh, how he phrases something to do with this freedom-from-power relationship. It's quite a long reading, but it's really good, so bear with me um, as, uh, as I read this out to you. Um, most of us feel trapped by what the Bible calls strongholds, an unusual word to describe patterns of behavior and cycles of thought that seem to have us in their grip. We find ourselves obsessed by gaining status or possessions or power, or we feel permanently mean-spirited, insecure and jealous, unable to rejoice at a friend's success, or we know that we're addicted to drugs or to pornography or even to work. Even as Christians, we can continue to live bound up by these things, behaving as though Christianity is not good news. If I were to ask you whether you were truly free and experiencing true liberation in your walk with Christ, you may be tempted to answer, yes, of course. But it's important to pause and search your heart. Are you constantly battling with anxiety, worry, lust, unforgiveness, anger, a lack of hope or despondency? Do these patterns of behavior make you feel as though you have no control over your life? If you answered yes to one or all of these questions, then you need to come back to the reality of the freedom purchased for you at the cross. And of course, if we're struggling, our struggle can be made worse by knowing that we're falling short. And then the gospel doesn't feel like the glad tidings of freedom and salvation proclaimed by Jesus, but like a rigid code of do's and don'ts, or a list of minimum requirements for the avoidance of punishment. As D.L. Moody once famously said, most people have just enough religion to make them miserable. Don't be fooled by the fact that you're not in handcuffs or behind prison bars. You can still be imprisoned in your mind and heart. But don't lose hope. We don't have to strive and strain on our own to achieve this freedom. Paul reassured the Ephesians, I pray that you may realize how vast are the resources of his spirit available to you. We can rely on the limitless power of Jesus if only we have the faith and the courage to ask him. Whatever we've done, whatever patterns have trapped us, we can choose to accept Christ's pardon. We may have been incarcerated, but Jesus unlocks the prison doors for us with simple steps and the words of truth. The truth will set you free. One of the many things that can compel us to follow Jesus is the fact that through the victory won at the cross of Calvary, I can be set free once for all. I can be sure, even amidst the many challenges and uncertainties of life, that God promised me freedom from the things that can keep me captive and in chains. I can read about every promise in him. Jesus is both yes and amen. Therefore, the prison doors that kept me bound and locked in my sinful habits through patterns could be opened and I could walk out, not because of my own bargaining or efforts, but because of the cross of Jesus and the power that lay therein. I could be changed, transformed, and live a life of power and freedom. John Calvin said, For as long as we are of the world, we do not belong to Christ. God's desire is for each of us, not that we go through life unscathed and without difficulty, but that (coughs) that how we live would reflect the position we now have in Christ. We too are with Christ in the heavenly places, and have the power of God that is much greater than any present evil or sin trying to lock us back up. The will of God is not that we would escape the world he created, for this is where we've been placed, but rather that sin and evil should have no power over us as we serve God, spreading God's truth of freedom to all creation and in every sphere of life. One of the teaching points of this series jesus loves everyone is that jesus loves more people than any of us realize he loves that we all put limits on who we think jesus is working in we have a an imaginary box in our mind of who's within the love of god that he's speaking to and who might be outside but jesus loves everyone not just the people that we think he loves not just the nice people that you know might be easy for Jesus to rescue. Everyone. Not just the people that we personally like. Everybody you know, everyone in your family, everyone you work with. Jesus loves the people that annoy you. Difficult people in your life. He loves all the people that are in prison. Jesus loves everyone. And the Jewish leaders in this story missed the point. They get into this terrible sin-forgiveness discussion with the man about his mat of all things. Because technically, on the Sabbath, having his mat under his arm was doing work. And God didn't want him to do that. God wanted him to have a proper Sabbath. It's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. It's really easy to miss the point. Even the man doesn't understand what's happened to him. He doesn't know who's healed him. In fact, Jesus has to find him later and almost complete the salvation experience that he had. And he had all three experiences that we've talked about tonight. He experienced first the power that Jesus could overcome his sick body and set him free. Jesus, when he meets him, says, Now, stop sinning. So he has his sin-forgiveness experience. And even through his bizarre encounter with the Jewish leaders, actually through that, his shame is removed. Because in that ancient world, if you, if you were separate because of your long-term sickness, if you, were, if you were outcast from the community, you could only be restored by seeing the Jewish leaders and then restoring you to the community. So this man has experienced all three examples of the love of Jesus that we've talked about. And it's worth noting, if you like, that none of the physical miracles of Jesus were an end in themselves. Each of them points to something greater, something more, something that tells us about the kingdom of God and what Jesus is doing and how he's working to transform in people's lives. For example, when Jesus feeds the 5,000 from a, a few loaves and fish, the point was He is the true bread from heaven. But in John 6, when he's explaining it to the crowd, he says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of loaves. He's saying, you missed the point of the spiritual sign. The miracles were only the physical shell. They were pointing you to the work that Jesus was doing. And so he's saying to this healed man in John 5, Don't miss what your healing was a sign of. Your healing was about God's power, the proof that God loves everyone and has power for everyone. We're going to have a few minutes just to chat on our tables with the people next to you, just to unpack what this means for you in your life. And I've got two questions for us to ponder. And the first is to think about, do you know someone that it, it feels to you like they're outside of the love of God? It might be someone you've seen on the news that's done terrible things. It might be somebody you know that almost in your heart you've, you've partitioned them and put them in a, okay, they're outside there, they're, in, they're not there. Who, who is that? Who have, you, who have you in your heart limited and excluded from Jesus' power to say, I can love you, I've got power for you? And the second question is to ask, is there a situation in your life, or maybe something you're aware of, it's a friend or someone you know of, where um, you've given up on Jesus' power? This poor man had been sick for 38 years. Now, it it doesn't sound like he'd been faithfully believing that whole time and holding out in faith, but I bet he'd cried out to God. I bet he had in a religious society of that time. I bet there were times when he just said to God, God, will I, will I always be like this? I bet he'd seen friends die and he'd thought, is that how I'll finish my life? Is there ever any hope? And again, we so easily write off the power of God and sort of scale God down and put him in a smaller box and say, I'm not sure he's got power enough for that situation. So what, what springs to mind for you? What situation have you? are you a bit afraid to say, no? Jesus has power to move and to act in that situation. So, over to you at your tables. Maybe chat to the two or three people around you. You've got just a couple of minutes or so, and then the rest of the service will carry on.